man by the name of Samuel Johnson, a celebrated English writer back in the 1700s. Once he heard his dinner guests talking with each other. One was saying that morality and ethics are merely a sham. When he heard this, he said to his butler, if they really believe there is no distinction between vice and virtue, let us count the spoons before they leave. (laughs) That was many years ago. Today, I believe that we don't have many spoons left to count. As I explain in my book, The Hidden Enemy, that we are finding ourselves now living in what the Oxford Dictionary called the post-truth culture. Many of our political leaders, business leaders, and yes, sadly, church leaders, no longer cherish the truth. And sadly, many of the younger generation are rising, they are unable to distinguish between truth and falsehood. That is why I am deeply thankful for the young people in this church, the Church of the Apostles. I pray for them every day. I thank God for them. I know more than they think I do about their standing and continue to stand steadfast for the truth despite of opposition. I thank God every day for you. In fact, all you need to do is watch. Watch some of those reports. You see them on television where they make stuff up. Never happened never took place, never was said, and I know you, you know what I'm talking about. Then he get the microphone and said, what do you think about so-and-so saying so-and-so? And never say, well, I really haven't heard this. I don't know about this. No, they pretend it's real. Oh, yeah, okay, let me tell you what I think about this. Made up stuff. Just think about this. The truth no longer matters. Sports and entertainment have become our idols. We have an unbalanced preoccupation with instant gratification instead of perseverance. We have an unbalanced preoccupation with escaping reality at any cost instead of standing and fighting for the truth. As someone said, whenever our trivial pursuits exceed this balance, we get thrown off balance. In fact, it was Teddy Roosevelt who once said the following, The things that will destroy us are prosperity at any price, peace at any price, safety first instead of duty, and the love of soft living and get-rich-quick schemes. You would think the guy was prophetic when you look back and you see where we are today. Now, beloved, you know that self-discipline and hard work is what really made this great country, is what built this great country and made it to be what it is today. But today, self-discipline seems to be a dirty word in some circles, in some sectors of our culture. But the question is, what is self-discipline? Let me give you a general definition. Self-discipline is the subordination of personal desire to selfless and godly endeavors. It is the subordination of that which is easy and attractive and, but wrong to that which is difficult but right. Now, for Bible-believing Christians, self-discipline is the subordinating of everything in life to the authority of the Word of God. Can I get an amen? Amen. Hear me right, because it is absurd to think that good intentions and warm and fuzzy feelings toward God somehow turns us into fruitful Christians. (laughs) It's absurd to think that the denial 
of biblical morality will bring us true joy in life. It is absurd to think that erasing the Old Testament, as so many evangelical preachers are saying, just remove the Old Testament, don't even read the Old Testament, just focus on the resurrection. As removing the Old Testament, going to convert people to Christ. It won't. No wonder Jesus asked the question in Luke chapter 18, verse 8, when the Son of Man returns, will He find faith on the earth? Easy believism that is preached in many a pulpit today has caused many people in the pew not know what they believe anymore. In the last message, I was personally struck by the Apostle Paul's explanation of true worship and how true worship is not only 24-7 offering of oneself to the Lord, it is a total commitment. Julian Huxley commented on this, saying, it doesn't take much for a man to be a Christian, it just takes all of him. In fact, Henry Drummond, the man of prayer, said the following, he said, the entrance fee to God's kingdom is nothing but the annual dues are everything. The phrase, the cost of discipleship, has not been preached from most pulpits these days. Cost of discipleship, count me out. I'm out of here. And yet Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, Paul is far from telling the believers in Rome to accommodate to the slovenness of the culture in Rome. Far from it. He is giving us a list of 25 demands. 25 demands. These demands, and listen to me very carefully, can never, 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 never accomplished with our own strength. If you tried like me and failed, you know what I'm talking about. Only the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, only that power of the Holy Spirit that can make the Lord Jesus' love through us can enable us to meet these 25 injunctions. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Romans 12, beginning at verse 9. The most important thing about that passage is that you have to keep it in context. For it is only after a believer has been deeply moved by the mercies of God And by the grace of God, as we saw in the last message, only then, out of gratitude and out of thanksgiving, (laughs) the believer would want to offer his body as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And only when the believer begins to offer all of him and all of her as a living sacrifice, only then that the mind begins to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. And when the mind begins to continuously being transformed, only then, in that state of transformation, you're going to see that these three things which I shared in the last message, that you will have an accurate perception of yourself, you have an adequate perception of others, and you will have an active serving mentality. Here, Paul continues, verses 9 to 21, and says, when all of that happens, and only then, true love, genuine love, is going to manifest itself in us. Only then. So to make it easier for you, I have codified those 25 injunctions into eight. First, in verse 9, 
says, love hates evil. Secondly, in verse 10, love gives honor. Thirdly, verse 11, love is passionate about God. Four, verse 12, love hopes and perseveres in prayer. Five, verse 13, love loves to give. Six, verses 14 and 15, love feels deeply with others. Seven, verses 16 to 19, love refuses to get even. Finally, number eight, verses 20 to 21, love reverses the cultural norms. Let's go through them very quickly. Love hates what? Paul describes genuine love, real love, not the fake one, but the real love. In the, literally, without hypocrisy, and he uses that Greek word. It's without hypocrisy. I know some translations said sincere, but literally without hypocrisy. What's hypocrisy? I sometimes hear the word hypocrisy used, and most times accurate, but other times they're really erroneous. Most people really don't understand what hypocrisy really means. I, I remember when I started my ministry in Sydney, Australia, back in the mid-70s, people would say to you, hey, Padre, you know why I don't come to church? No. It's full of hypocrites. Well, I have to confess to you, that used to bamboozle me, and I didn't know what to say until I really realized, and God gave me the answer. And from that moment on, when they say, hey, Padre, do you know why I don't go to church? It's full of hypocrites. I would say, you're right, but we have room for one more. Come and join us. <laughs> Man, that ends the conversation. <laughs> but the word hypocrisy, the Greek word that Paul is using here, comes from the ancient world of acting. <laughs> why the ancient world of acting? Because back then in the ancient world, the actors put a mask on to be somebody else or something else. And Paul is saying, hypocritical love is a love that puts on a mask. Hypocritical love is a love that loves in words only. Hypocritical love is a love that loves when it's convenient. Hypocritical love is a love that's only seasonal or as-needed basis. Judas was one of the twelve disciples, and he, for three years, had a mask on the entire time, but the day came when the mask fell and the real person showed up. Sooner or later, the real person will be revealed. Listen to me. Today, we have such a confused and false notion of love, <laughs> and we think love is really not condemning sin. Professing Christians would tell you the definition of real love is that mushy, fuzzy, warm feeling. <laughs> that love is that milk-toast reaction to sin or the suspension of our critical faculties. <laughs> now, beloved, you do not have to go to a seminary to comprehend what the Word of God is saying here regarding true love, regarding genuine love. Genuine love hates evil. I have to confess to you that the more I walk with Christ, 
the more I genuinely hate sin in my life in words I cannot even express. Genuine love must hate evil. Genuine love must hate compromising of the Word of God. Genuine love must hate rebellion against the command of God. The only security against sin is to be continuously be shocked by sin. You know what is happening in our culture? We're no longer shocked by rebellion against the Word of God. The first stage came a few decades ago when we baptized sin into the church. And then we got worse sin and got that baptized too. And what it's doing to us is anesthetizing us against being shocked by sin. We're accommodating to it, not shocked by it. Please think with me. Think with me. Try to imagine a group of doctors and nurses who are working in the infectious disease ward of a hospital who refuse to wear protective gear. You say, that's unconscionable, and I agree with you. I agree 100%. But that's where many Christians are today. Let's wake up, beloved, before it's too late. Amen? Loving people but hating sin is not only a must. It's the only way to thrive in this perverse culture. Love hates what? Secondly, love, genuine love, gives honor to whom honor is due. Now, I know and you know that there are some people confuse honoring somebody with flattery. Now, listen to me. Flattery is a sin, and I pray none of you practice it. But honor shows genuine appreciation for those who have ministered to us. It is not a sin. Honor is your respect and acknowledging of the faithfulness of those who minister to us. Honoring others is a sure way of strangling envy and jealousy in our lives. Honoring faithfulness is a mark of genuine love. Love hates what? Love gives what? Love is passionate about God. Verse 11. Back in the days of the Wesleyan Brothers' revival, the Methodist revival, they used to call passion for Christ. They used to call it enthusiasm. That was the word And this was a big accusation of anybody who's really passionate about Christ. And they literally put people on trial if they're accused of enthusiasm. I will never forget, 1984, I was visiting a church in Charleston, South Carolina. After the service was over, the pastor invited me back in the chancel, and, and, and he said, now, I want you to sit on this chair here. I sat on the chair. I didn't know what the what is coming, and he said, this is the chair in which Charles Wesley was tried by the bishops of the church and found guilty of enthusiasm. That's what they called it back then. Little did I know, little did I know that six to seven years later, in 1992, that I was tried by the bishops of that same church and found guilty for having passion for Christ and the authority of the Scripture. And I was defrocked from that denomination, something I wear with a badge of honor. (laughs) Amen. Today we can have passion for a sports team. I mean, we can have passion for a hobby. 
we can have passion for countless things. <laughs> and we are called fans. But try to have passion for Jesus, and you are called fanatic. Beloved, passion for God does not mean mindless activities. Passion for God does not mean mindless emotions. But rather, Paul is trying to tell the believers in Rome, and indeed to us today, that we should not cool off our zeal for Christ and for His Word. Can I get a witness? That we should not be cooled off by the godless environment in which we live that we should not become indifferent toward the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who have been lost. Love hates what? Love gives what? Love is passionate about? Love hopes and perseveres in prayer. Look at verse 12. Rejoicing in hope and persevering in prayer. What does that mean? Well, it means that you shouldn't be discouraged when God had not answered your prayers immediately. Don't give up praying in the face of resistance. You don't give up praying the moment you're rejected. Listen to me. Don't give up. God will answer at the right time. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, if you remain steadfast, if you remain immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, your labor is not in vain. When you are faithful to the only one who can generously reward you, when you are faithful to the only one who can see you all of the time, when you are faithful to the only one who can truly bless you, when you are faithful to the only one who can truly answer your prayers then you can rejoice in hope ahead of time, and then you wait in prayer. My experience in praying is that God gives four answers, at least from my personal point of view. He gives four answers, not one or two, four. The Lord says, no, not yet. Or sometimes He says, no. I love you too much to give you that. Or he can say, yes, I thought you'll never ask. And the fourth one, I've experienced many, many times to doubt it. He says, yes, here is more. Exceedingly, abundantly. Thomas Brooks illustrated our lack of perseverance in prayer this way. He said, cold prayers are like arrows without heads, swords without an edge, birds that have no wings. They pierce not, they cut not, they fly not to heaven. Cold prayers freezes before it reaches heaven. All I can say is, Lord, have mercy. Love hates Love gives. Love is passionate about. Love hopes and perseveres. Love loves to give. Verse 13. I want you to know at the outset, one of the greatest blessings in my life, blessings that literally blesses me out of my socks, is that I have been privileged to know some people who love to give. 
And the reason I love them is because I want to emulate them. They will never know the side of heaven. What a blessing they are. And I've seen them in Australia, in Europe, and here in the United States, of course, in this church. I cannot tell you how much these folks bless me just for watching them. But sadly, I have also known others who nickel and dime God. You know what I'm talking about? They nickel and dime. Should I tithe before taxes? Should I tithe after taxes? What does the word tithe mean? We're going to look it up in the dictionary. It's 10%. And that's the starting point, not the ending. Should I only give when I have extra money, or should I give? Should I even tithe at all? Beloved, here's the core problem about giving. Listen to me. Here's the core problem. We think of ourselves as the owners of everything that God has given us. And that's really the error that many, even Bible-believing Christians, fall into. We think we own it. We think it's ours. We don't realize that we are managers and working for the boss who gave us everything. Listen, the Bible makes it absolutely clear. We are mere managers. And one day we're going to give an account. And don't forget that the boss, he's watching you. He's watching patiently and longing for you to come into the joy of being hilarious giver. How are you managing that which is entrusted to you? According to Jesus, in Luke 16.10, is that those who can be trusted with very little will be trusted with much. Let me share with you how I see this. You know how when you go and get a mortgage or a loan from the bank, they ask you for your statement of net worth? And many times, the sense of ludicrous in me, I want to go and calculate everything I gave away, add it up, and present it to the banker as my statement of net worth. I know it wouldn't fly with the bankers, but at least that is my absolute conviction. My true statement of net worth is everything that I send on the eternal bank of heaven. You see, your statement of net worth is not what you have, it's what you gave. Love hates evil. Love gives. Love is passionate about. Love hopes and perseveres. Love loves to Love feels deeply with others. Look at verses 14 and 15. Rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. Now, rejoicing here does not mean uh, participating in these mindless parties. It's partying. That's what some people think rejoicing. No, that's not rejoicing. But because it's tied up with loving of your enemy here in this context, rejoicing, therefore, means the following. Listen carefully. Say you and somebody else in your company or in your organization or within your sphere are up for a promotion. He or she gets it, you don't. Can you rejoice with him? <laughs> ah, that's what it means. Can you rejoice for that person? Uh, say you are in another person in a context. He wins, you lose. Can you really rejoice for that person? See, that's what it means. Uh, say you watch how God has blessed someone, and you're struggling. Can you say, oh, God, thank you for blessing my friend? See, that's what it means here in this context. Now, you have to agree with me that in our culture, any culture, this type of rejoicing with others 
even at our expense, is, can, only be, can only be a Christian principle, only in the Christian faith. Love hates what? Evil. Love gives. Honor. Love's passionate about. God. Love hopes and persevere in. Love loves to. Love feels deeply with others. Number seven, love refuses to get even. Look with me at verses 16 all the way to 18. I don't know about you, but have you ever asked yourself the question, what is the primary reason for wanting revenge? Have you ever asked that? What is the real motive inside of me of wanting to hurt someone who had hurt me? What is the underlying desire for that payback? You know what I'm talking about? You hear it a lot in the media. You punch me, I'll punch back, right? Why do we want to stick it to somebody who wounded us? One word. Pride. Pride. That's the underlying reason. That is the bottom line motivation. When you see people who specialize in gossip and sowing seed of division, they only do that because they're conceited. As Scripture indicates that these folks really refuse to be associated with people whom they see to be below them. Pride. Pride. Let me testify to the glory of God. In all my years in ministry, I have never been more freed up and liberated than when a time I learned to pray for someone who has falsely accused me who has unjustly criticized me. I pray specifically for God to bless them and bless their family and bless the people, bless their work, bless their... I specifically spend time praying that God would bless them. Oh, by the way, stop, stop. In case you start thinking that I'm a super-duper Christian, don't. (laughs) I'm ashamed of the fact that it has taken me years to learn this lesson of genuinely praying for someone who wronged me to pray for someone who deliberately impugned my motives, to pray for someone who deliberately maligned me. Love hates. Love gives. Love's passionate about. Love hopes and perseveres in. Love loves to. Love feels deeply with. Love refuses to. And finally, verses 20 and 21, love reverses the cultural norms, the cultural norms. The natural thing in our interactions, in our behavior, the natural thing is he hit me, I'll hit him back harder. He punched me, I'm going to punch back with more vigor. He attacked me, I'm going to attack him with all I've got. He marred my reputation, I'm going to do it back with vengeance. That's just the natural world which we live in, the fallen world. But you know what Paul is really saying here? Now, let me give you a Yusuf, not translation, interpretation, okay? You cannot take care of your enemy better than God can. So, you might as well leave him or her to God. God will do a much better job with justice than you can. In this way, you will also heap burning coals of shame on their head. Here's what I know about burning coal, and that's actually repeated in the Scripture several times. 
It comes from ancient Egyptians. In ancient Egyptian culture, this was a ritual. When somebody is found guilty by the court, they put a, a container on which burning coal inside that container, and he uh, would have that on his head and keep walking around. And as we walk, people on the roof seeing that happen, they throw more coals on it, so it keep on burning. This was a punishment that was meant to be a punishment by the authorities. A guilty person is paying penance. Beloved, listen, see how the Bible reverses everything. For Christian believers, he or she reverses the social norm, and thus they shame their enemies, not by revenge. No. Christian believers reverse this process of evil by praying for the wrongdoer. Still don't like the wrong, don't misunderstand me, still hate the wrong, but praying. That is worse than putting heaping burning coal on their head. I can tell you on the authority of the Word of God, you cannot do any of these things that I've just talked about from the epistle to the Romans on your own strength. I want to repeat this. I said it in the beginning. I'm saying it now. I know that every faithful believer here has said, Oh man, Michael, I remember when I was trying to do it, and I was trying to do it, and Greg my teeth, and it just didn't work. It will not work. No matter how strong will you may be, you can only do this in the power of the Holy Spirit within you. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.